In the reign of Tiberius Caesar, the word of God came to John in the wilderness. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now starting at verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? the crowd asked. John answered, The man with two tunics should share with him who has none, and the one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come. The straps of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you so much, Jacqueline. Well, good morning. Now, for all of us who are probably busy getting into the spirit of Christmas, today's reading might strike us as a bit of a downer. Passing through the season of Advent, moving toward Christmas, we're expecting glad tidings of great joy. And yet John the Baptist seems so out of place among our Christmas cheer. Here he comes, preaching of repentance and the coming wrath of God. An axe prepared to cut down every tree that does not bear good fruit and throw it into the fire. Some of us may start to shudder and think, who invited this guy who's wearing camel's hair and eating grasshoppers to our Christmas party? He may seem a bit like Ebenezer Scrooge, going round shouting bar humbug at everything. Or maybe the Grinch who stole Christmas for those of you a bit younger. But if this is what we think of John and his message, then we gravely misunderstand him. Don't forget who it is that leapt with joy were inside his mother's womb when the pregnant Virgin Mary stood near. It was John the Baptist. And don't forget who excitedly proclaimed, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world the first time he saw Jesus. It was John the Baptist. 
He knows the Christmas joy as well or better than any of us. But unfortunately today, it's easy to see John the Baptist as a bit of a caricatured authority figure, all red-faced, barking to people who come out innocently to hear a sermon from a person they take to be a prophet, and he's shouting things like, You brood of vipers! Who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? And it's that almost comic image of John that's the easiest thing to dislike about this reading. There are more. John's recommendations to people. Share one cloak if they own two. Do the same kind of sharing with your food. It sounds almost Marxist, doesn't it? And from each according to his ability, to each according to their needs. Exactly what Karl Marx said. It doesn't sound much like the advent we know and love. Isaiah's promises of peace, of Mary and Elizabeth rejoicing over children they're expecting. This is very different. So our tendency this morning is probably to turn off because it sounds a bit angry. Or turn off because it sounds like we don't really agree with it. But I believe this text is in our Bibles, in Luke, because we need its message today more than ever, especially in the season of Advent. So over the next few minutes, I'm going to ask us to try and do some thinking, some really hard thinking, as we look at this together. What good does God want me to hear from this passage today? What am I supposed to do? Let's just pray for a moment. Father, as we look at this, this passage together, Lord, would you speak to us clearly? Would you help us to know what we do and what we think and help that to be put into actions? Lord, teach us and Lord, speak to us. Amen. Now, I remember last year, I think Tim showed us a a little clip about the phenomenon Advent Conspiracy. And it's a movement that's mainly been promoted online that was founded a few years ago by ecumenical ministers in America whose goal was to reclaim the season from the consumerist frenzy that it's become. Their website says this, this was once a time to celebrate the birth of a saviour and it somehow turned into a season of stress, traffic jams and shopping lists. And when it's all over, many of us are left with presents to return, looming debt, and a feeling of missed purpose. Is this what we want Christmas to look like? And the main question they have is this. What if Christmas became a world-changing event again? And they offer us a challenge to buy less stuff and give more of ourselves, to live more simply. And they also present a bigger challenge to redirect some of what we usually spend at this time of year toward creating a better world. And they provide some pretty startling statistics. The UN report that 5,000 children die every day from diseases caused by unclean water and poor sanitation. And the estimated cost of ending this injustice and in creating clean water sources around the world is about $11 billion a year. Now, how much do you think Britons spend on Christmas each year? Any guesses? I'll tell you. 22 billion pounds. That's 35 billion dollars. And in America, 
they spend an estimated $450 billion, $11 billion a year, to create clean water sources for everyone in the world. This message isn't just crazy propaganda. It's true, and it makes for uncomfortable reading. And that's much like today's reading. It's uncomfortable. Now, John the Baptist didn't get paid to preach at weddings. He didn't get paid to preach for funerals. He didn't get paid to preach on Sunday mornings. Instead of his salary being paid for by the congregation or the diocese, John the Baptist lived out in the desert on locusts and wild honey. He wasn't influenced by lobbyists, wasn't out for political gain, didn't sell his soul to the highest bidder or slant his message to increase his ratings. He told the truth, the absolute truth about God. He told the truth about human beings. He stood out in front of the crowds, not wanting to win friends and influence people, not wanting to show the crowds how clever he was, not wanting to get people to experience the power of positive thinking. John the Baptist preached in such a way that he upset people and rattled them. He could have been saying to the crowd something like, you people, you act like frauds, pretending that you're so pious, pretending that you're so religiously perfect. Why don't you get freed up from your religion? It's shallow. It's sentimental. If I had the kind of inner religion that many of you have, I'd be embarrassed to call myself religious at all. Why don't you show that you have genuinely changed? And the group of people there was clearly quite defensive. And John knew what they were thinking. They were thinking, we're good Jews. We might say today, well, we're good Baptists, we're good Anglicans, whatever it is. Who do you think you are talking to us like that? Don't you know who you're talking to? John was out to name that opinion as a mistake, as something that was crucially and fundamentally wrong. You say you're children of Abraham, and you think that answers all the questions. Well, not so fast, because God, if he wanted to, could make children of Abraham from these stones. And if you've ever seen photos of the Jordan River, it's full of stones. It's a desert, nothing but grassless, stony wasteland. So being children of Abraham isn't the greatest gift or the final answer. And the same way, calling ourselves a Christian isn't the final answer. There was another group there that day, though, and it's, it's not really clear from the passage how it happened, but maybe it was just a few words. Maybe it was a sentence or two that suddenly switched on the light. Something that John said to them hit home. It got under their skin, and they asked a very personal question. So what can I do? What can we do to change for the better? If we start asking those questions of ourselves or of God, it's probably a sign that we're beginning to understand more of what God wants for us. As we heard last week from Jenny, John's the forerunner. He's beginning to unpack the message that Jesus will bring to completion. He's getting anyone who would listen to him to prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. And to my mind, that's what Advent is all about. John's speaking a very difficult message, but it's a message that we still need to hear and understand today. The fact is that our God, who is good, has a moral will for us, his creatures. He cares, ultimately, totally, about what we do. 
God cares if we've been lied to. He cares if we've been cheated. God's not okay with that. He cares. It matters to him because he made us. He hates it when one of his children is damaged, disadvantaged, or suffers. He cares when his children are hungry and don't have enough food, when they have no clean drinking water, when they have inadequate housing, when they get pushed around and abused by faceless systems, whether that's greedy corporations or abusive governments, or just simply officials with titles and power who use them for their own advantage. He hates it when they get blown up in a Baghdad marketplace. He hates it like tragedy happened this week when they get shot at at schools. He hates it, though, when some of his people who are doing okay observe the suffering of their sisters and brothers and turn away from helping them. He hates it when the two-coat people ignore the no-coat people on cold nights. He hates it when the plenty of food on the plate people turn away from the no food on the plate people, as if they were not children of the same parent. So what does God do when he looks and sees all this suffering that goes on that he hates? If he saw it all and did nothing, it'd be like a parent who saw a child playing with matches on the sofa and didn't stop them. He must act. Does he have options? Is it going to be another worldwide flood or another round of fire and brimstone? Well, he's tried that response and it didn't help much. What we learn in Advent is that God has a plan. A plan that he invoked 2,000 years ago. And the plan starts with the messenger to prepare the way, followed by a direct intervention. John comes as the messenger to prepare the way for God's direct intervention. John declares, there is one more powerful than I to follow. John's message is one of preparation, preparing our hearts and making sure that our actions match our words. God comes down to this planet of his making and makes himself a human that he made. God's direct intervention is Christmas. God himself comes down to be one of these people to save them from the mess we've been making. He comes to be with us, to know firsthand what life is like down here, where some of, us, some of us have two coats and supper waiting, while others have none. And to teach us once again about his Father, our Father in heaven, about God. And that's exactly why Christmas is so crucially important for us. It's God's direct intervention into a world that probably deserves another round of fire and brimstone. But he's got no more interest in that. He has the plan to redeem and save these pathetic, small-minded, selfish individuals like me and transform us into people who get it. I'm supposed to get it that God, my creator, my father, is morally good and wants me to be good as well, to worship him as he truly is and to take my place on this planet for the span of years, however long that is, that I'm here. And it's supposed to, I'm supposed to get it that I'll occupy understanding that all the people around me are relatives for whom I am morally responsible. Are you ready for Christmas? That's a question we've probably been asked numerous times and will be over the next week or so. What does that mean? Well, I could say I've brought all and wrapped all the presents, although that probably wouldn't be true because Judy's done it. Um, 
I could say that I've ordered the meat. I did that yesterday morning with Judy nudging me in bed, but <laughs> it always takes Judy to make me do stuff, that's the thing. I could say we've got the tree and decorations up, although we haven't. Um, but I do know when our children are coming home, and it seems to be a bit of a military operation this year. But is that what we really mean? Is that what's important about our preparations? The things that John is saying t tells us that what we need to know, all that we need to know about getting ready for Christmas. It's about being prepared to repent so that we're always willing and ready to worship. It's about being prepared to spend less on ourselves and give more to those who need it, whether that's time or money. It's about being loving, and I mean truly loving, to all those around us, not just the people we like. The real problem, problem is how we do that practically. Do our actions really speak louder than our words? Tim said a couple of weeks ago that Advent is about making a spiritual assessment of our lives and our hearts in readiness for Christ's coming. So being, being ready for Christmas isn't about the presents or the parties, the food or the decorations. It's about being ready for whatever God will call on us to do this year. For us as a family this year, it's about giving up Christmas Day to be part of Soul Purpose Christmas, to make sure that some people who would normally be alone at Christmas will get to hear and experience the good news of the season. How will you be ready for Christmas? John's message to us can helpfully be summarized as this. Worship fully, spend less, give more, love all. And that's exactly what Advent Conspiracy would have us do this year. Let's just watch this little clip. Spend less, give more may appear to contradict each other, but it's simple really. It encourages us to spend less on gifts that will only be returned or left to gather dust at the back of a cupboard, but then says give more. Give more of yourselves to your family. Make your gifts. What would you rather have? An ill-fitting Christmas jumper with questionable taste or some homemade fudge or pickle? I know what I'd rather have. Um, and what about the money you haven't spent on gifts? What are you going to do with that? John gives us some ideas. Some of us may get a bit hot under the collar when we discuss giving in church and we start talking about tithing. However, John isn't talking about tithing here. He talks about giving away half of what we have. If you have two coats, give one of them away to the poor. Do the same with your food, he says. So what should we do? What we should do is do exactly the same thing that the group's people who came out to the Jordan River to be baptized did. The crowds, the tax collectors, the soldiers, all did exactly the same thing. They all asked the question, what should I do? This is the question that shows that we get it. You mean God is watching? You mean that he cares? You mean that all of our actions towards each other, all our relationships, all our interactions with each other matter to him? Well then, what should we do? A person who is asking what should we do is only really working out the details. The details will always differ. What should we do? It depends on who you are and what you have been doing. If you are a tax collector, and you've been extorting, you need to stop it. God cares. If you're a two-coat person, then look around. 
you know what you need to do. If you've been a food on the plate person, look around. You know what you need to do. The main thing is to keep looking around and to keep asking the question. Today, what am I to do? It's not rocket science. It's not even simple maths. What should we do? We should be good. Not trivially good, but globally good, humanely good, ethically good, morally good, because we know and worship God who is ultimately good. Let this be our Advent conspiracy. Let this be our Advent challenge. Amen.